Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3-invest.com. There you can also subscribe to our complimentary newsletter, i3 Insights in which we discuss investment strategy and asset allocation questions with asset owners around the world. Now, as you all know, we love our disclaimers in this industry, so here's ours. This recording is for educational purposes only. It does not constitute financial advice. Please enjoy the show. This podcast was sponsored by PGIM. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but the final control over the podcast remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Shushil Wadwani, who is the Chief Investment Officer for QMAW. Shushil is also an Emeritus Governor at the London School of Economics, and a former member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England between 1999 and 2002. Sushil, welcome to the show. Good evening. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. You have a very uh, impressive resume, and I'm uh, keen to hear some of your thoughts on the, the impact of monetary policies in, in, in the last decade. But let's start at the beginning. Um, I read that you already... Um, observed the 1973 financial crisis with great interest as a teenager. Can you tell me a little bit about how that interest started and how you got started in investing? So, so my family had uh, left Kenya um, uh, and uh, on our way to England, but we had to spend some time in Hong Kong. Um, and you may or may not know this, but in 1973-4, the Hong Kong stock market was particularly affected. Um, it was, I think, peak to trough, uh, down over 70%. Um, so it's the sort of thing you would notice. Um, and, you know, I was 13, 14 years old, yeah? So uh, I, I didn't have much knowledge. But it, it did seem odd to me that a market could fall so much without the underlying fundamentals changing so much. Because I remember asking people about things like earnings, because, you know, you read the odd newspaper and people said earnings hadn't fallen so much, but the price had fallen so much. So I was very intrigued by why the P.E. ratio uh, had fallen so much. And I was constantly asking people and certainly I think friends of my parents got very irritated by the questions I was asking. But, but the good bit about this was it sort of led me to read. And, and, and that's how I sort of discovered an interest in economics. Yeah. So as a teenager, you were already interested in uh, P.E. ratios. Uh, I'm not sure if that's still the case today. <laughs> Isn't that rather sad? <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Um, I think you were also initially planning on a career as an academic. Uh, what, what changed your mind? Oh, so I, I actually did that for some years, essentially because of my interest in economics. Uh, I did uh, you know, I was lucky enough to go to the London School of Economics as a student. I went there for my first degree and then I stayed on. I did a master's and a PhD. 
Uh, and then I was lucky enough to be appointed uh, as a lecturer there, lecturer in the working of financial markets as it happens. And uh, I was an academic for seven years. I was on the LSE faculty for seven years and uh, did a reasonable amount of research in a variety of areas. I enjoyed that. Now, it was in relation to this research that someone at Goldman Sachs uh, noticed one of my papers on the stock market, and I was lucky enough to be invited in for a conversation. And uh, they then offered me uh, a consulting assignment, and I hugely enjoyed that. So it was one day a week. So the LSE kindly gave me time off one day a week to work with Goldman's, uh, uh, you know, on various pieces of research for them. A lot of it was modeling work, uh, econometric modeling work for them on markets. Uh, and I loved it. And then the opportunity came along from Goldman's for me to take a three-year sabbatical from academia to go to Goldman's full-time. And the LSE kindly gave me that break. Uh, and I went to Goldman's full-time and really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I think you still um, are in, in contact with the, the business school today? Uh, yes, yes. So I, um, uh, you know, I've stopped being governor. That's what emeritus governor means. But um, I'm still, um, I still chair the investment committee for the endowment at the LSE, uh, and you know, still have plenty of friends there. Um, so, so I do go back. You know, before the pandemic, my office was only a ten-minute walk from the LSE, which was very convenient. Yeah. Now. You were a member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee. And if I look back since sort of the, the, the global financial crisis, monetary policy has pretty much dominated uh, um, economics, the markets. What is sort of your view with that background on, on the, the past 10 years? Do you think it has distorted markets? Was it a good decision? What are your thoughts there? So, so I think uh, I certainly regard the actions uh, of the central banks in 08, 09, uh, as being, uh, you know, astonishingly quick to respond. And I believe they saved the world from uh, a much worse outcome. So I, I'm, I'm a great fan of QE1, if you like, you know, the first bout of QE, because I think it averted uh, a, a potential crisis or it, it mitigated the crisis we were already in. And, and by the way, I should say I left uh, the Bank of England in uh, 2002. So I, you know, I'm not in any shape or form taking credit for 08 or 09. You know, those are very clever people who acted forcefully and, and did a good job. I think what I query is uh, what's happened subsequently. Now, again, I should say very impressed by how forcefully and quickly they acted in March 2020. So again, great job. So, so I think. They've done a good job in two successive crises. But my worry is that certainly after the last one, they overstayed their welcome. So it seems to me that we've acquired this kind of fetish, this kind of obsession that inflation has to be just right. Yeah. So in the US, you know, inflation PCE came in about 1.6%. But because they're obsessed to get it to 2%, they've been worrying about this very modest undershoot you know, 1.6 versus two. What's that between friends? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's been happening in other countries too. Um, and I think it's led central banks to stay easy for too long, which has then led to problems 
uh, in terms of interest rates being too close to the effective lower bound, you know, when the next crisis came along, which was March 2020. Yeah. Uh, but the other difficulty it causes is I think there are plausible reasons for believing that it's not good for productivity. And ultimately, you know, our living standards are determined by the amount of productivity growth we get. Uh, and therefore, I think it's a pity that uh, they allowed policy to be so easy. And, you know, in your question, it's not just the negative impact on productivity, it's the implications for financial stability. You know, yeah. it's why we've had all these bubbles. And uh, I, I think central banks in general pay too little attention to their, their role in leading to asset price misalignments. Yeah. And, and again, I would argue that this time around, there is a danger that they're going to remain easy for too long. Yeah. You can see that and you, you're seeing the bubbles and you're seeing uh, the beginning of inflationary pressures. You know, so, so on the one hand, great crisis fighters. On the other hand, I think too slow to take the punch ball away. Yeah. So do you think that we are in a bubble today? I mean, equity prices are high. Property prices are sky high. Um, is there just too much money floating around? So, you know, if one looks at conventional uh, financial models, you know, dividend discount model or something, then given how low real rates are, it's difficult to argue that equities are overvalued relative to these very low real rates. Yeah. Now, of course, it's a different matter about where the bonds are in a bubble. Yeah. I, you know, should real rates this, be this low? I mean, that's something we can separately debate. So I would say the signs of concern in terms of financial stability really reside in pockets. So it's the SPACs. It's <laughs> perhaps some of the crypto stuff. Yeah. And, and you, you see manifestations of perhaps being too much liquidity, in, you know, GameStop, stuff like that. So I yeah. think you, you're seeing it in pockets. You're not seeing it generally in markets given where real rates are. But I would argue that real rates, you know, central banks have set real short-term rates too low, given the recovery we're experiencing, given the inflationary pressures we're seeing. Uh, central banks should be more proactive to head off these inflationary pressures. And a byproduct of that would be to deal with, you know, some of the irrational exuberance we're seeing in pockets of the market. You said that um, maybe central banks are not always aware of the role they play in, in the stability of the market and, and the stability of asset pricing. Was that ever a point of discussion when, when you were involved with the central bank? Yes. So, so certainly when I was on the MPC, I was a part of uh, a group of economists who wrote the so-called Geneva report on asset price misalignments and central bank policy. And back then, this was very controversial. So there have always been sort of different views amongst, you know, very clever people. So in those days, Professor Bernanke had been a Fed governor, but, you know, obviously had yet to become Fed chairman. But he'd written a famous paper arguing that central banks should just focus on inflation and output gaps and not worry too much about asset price misalignments. Right. But the little book that we wrote, uh, the four of us, I was one of four co-authors, we argued that actually, if you wanted to deliver 
price stability in a sustainable way, then central banks should be paying more attention to asset price misalignment. Because what we argued is that if you allowed asset prices to get misaligned, then essentially inflation could temporarily get too high. And then in clamping down, you could end up pushing inflation too low because uh, the bust, the asset price bust, uh, then can potentially lead to entrenched deflation, and you want to, you want to prevent that. So, so what is your thoughts about sort of the coming period? Do you think that monetary policy will also play a dominant role in, in the coming years, and and perhaps influence further the, some of the distortions we see? Yes. Yeah, so, I think the macro policy settings are going to be incredibly important in coming years. But I mean, obviously, as you rightly pointed out, central banks played an important role, uh, especially since the GFC. Now, fiscal policy has come to the party in a big way. I mean, look at the yes. US numbers. They're staggering. Who would have thought you'd get, you know, three trillion of stimulus in the US in such a short space of time? But there you are. You've had it. Now, given how stimulative to fiscal policy is, monetary policy has an important role in terms of ensuring inflation expectations don't get out of hand and ensuring that inflation doesn't stay high for too long. For the moment, it seems to me, because they've committed to you know, the AIT regime, seems to me there's a risk that they end up behind the curve and they end up being too patient. They let inflation stay high for too long. And in that regard, I think monetary policy has a key role to play. I think it's a pity that we that our monetary policy makers have stopped being preemptive just when we need them to be preemptive. <laughs> um, it's very sad. I mean, they're fighting the last war. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think, you know, I'm hoping that we get a U-turn from them. My fear is that the U-turn will come too late. And if it comes too late, it leads to more macroeconomic instability. Yeah, that might be a worry. So if we focus on your your, your current uh, role um, as CIO and an investor, um, you have a systematic uh, macro style, which obviously the, the central bank background helps helps with that as well. But I, I've seen it somewhere described that your style um, is sort of a combination of quantitative modeling and Keynesian economics. Can you explain <laughs> it a little bit? Why has uh, uh, Keynes been such an inspiration for you? Uh, yes. So, um, you know, as a student of economics, academic economist, always hugely impressed by his insights, by how well he wrote and so on. But in terms of financial markets, you know, I think, you know, especially if you read volume 12 of his collected works, but also a little bit in the general theory, he anticipated a lot of the academic developments uh, in the literature in the last 20, 30, 40 years. So, uh, you know, we have, we have a whole literature on behavioral biases, but he was talking about it. We have a whole literature on herding behavior. He was talking about that. And we have a whole literature about the distinction between risk and uncertainty. Now, to be fair, Frank Knight got there before Keynes, but academics have uh, rediscovered their interest in the distinction between risk and uncertainty and how you then optimally invest given uncertainty rather than risk. And Keynes was there. So a lot of very valuable insights about how one should think about markets, how one should invest, 
uh, how one should think about the efficient market hypothesis and so on. You know, b- before the term was invented, all therein came really. So the first thing is great for intuition and ideas. And the second thing really an inspiration that, you know, someone who reinvented macroeconomics also found the time to run an investment syndicate, which we, these days we'd call a hedge fund, to be the investment bursar for, you know, King's College, you know, the endowment, and to be chairman of an insurance company and advise on investment there. Uh, I mean, it's absolutely astonishing that a single individual could find time to do all those varied things. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so, I mean, one feels very humble. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're certainly very busy. Uh, one, one of the famous ideas that he promoted was the idea of, of animal spirits, um, yes. where, you know, for a while there is this consensus uh, amongst people um, but at some point, there will be an event that will cause uh, a massive shift. To what extent do you think that those thoughts are still relevant? And, and are we perhaps due for a major shift? Yes. So certainly the importance of animal spirits uh, has again been understood by uh, more recent academics. So Nobel Prize winning economists George Akerlof and Bob Schiller wrote a book with that title you know, a few years ago. Of course, it was hugely relevant in 2008, where there was a sudden uh, change. And, and that's why QE1 was so important, because it helped deal with, with that change, important change in sentiment. Again, I would argue animal spirits played a huge role in that overreaction in markets in March 2020. And we were lucky to have policymakers who responded aggressively and promptly. So we need to be grateful to them for aborting what could have been a vicious cycle caused by animal spirits. But you're right. You're right. I mean, given the pockets of exuberance that we now see, if they were to extend, you know, if we did get a correction, it could be associated with animal spirits switching very quickly. And obviously, the sectors that would be affected would be the sectors that are most exuberant now. So areas in technology, areas in that whole green sector. I mean, just look at the PEs in that sector at the moment and, uh, and SPACs. Um, so certainly I think we could see a meaningful change. And of course that would have a huge impact on the real world. I mean, there are always innocent casualties from these changes in sentiment. And this time around, policymakers can do less because we've got yes. inflationary pressures. Yeah. So we saw in March relatively quick turnaround because of that uh, physical response uh, of governments. But at the same time, you sort of walk along the streets of cities and you see a lot of police science, you see a lot of closed businesses. Do you think there might be still an impact coming from the uh, pandemic that has a longer term effect on, on economies around the world? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean... The fact that that impact would occur was almost inevitable because of the pandemic. What policymakers needed to do was to reduce the extent of the impact and to reduce the enduring effects of that impact. So what economists in the jargon call scarring. Uh, And I would say in many countries so far, things have gone better than I certainly feared back then. I thought 
we would already see more evidence of scarring than we've seen. But what I underestimated was the extent to which policymakers were willing to be generous. So in this country, we had something I think similar to your JobKeeper scheme, something we call a furlough scheme in the UK, where uh, workers get paid 80% uh, of their prior wages, you know, through this period. Now, this was initially announced as a six-month thing in the UK. It's been repeatedly extended, and at this point only expires in September 21. So it turned out to be quite a long-term program, but it's been essential, absolutely essential, to prevent some of the uh, really, really bad effects the pandemic could have had. Uh, Now, of course, no formal policy intervention is foolproof, and there will be We've already had some very sad casualties, and we'll have more. Uh, I mean, there's a limit to what policymakers can do in the face of such a big shock. So how do you integrate these type of big developments and big questions into your investment strategy? You know, the internet's been a wonderful thing because it's allowed us macro people, systematic macro people, to have access more quickly and to more data. You know, what in the jargon I I guess gets called big data, but I don't like that term. But Why not? Uh, oh, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of hype associated with that. But uh, because there's a lot of so-called big data that's completely useless that people talk about using. So I think that, you know, one has to be a bit careful about marketing speak. Yeah. But having said that, it's transformed certainly uh, what we do in terms of investing. So, you know, more generally, we're able to pick up changes in economic sentiment so much more quickly than we could, say, in the 1990s when I was trying to model this stuff. Uh, You know, uh, the, you know, better techniques, better data. So, you know, for example, you know, one of the many indicators we use is the San Francisco Fed uses natural language processing techniques to look at different types of media to pick up consumer sentiment in the US. Wonderful indicator. You know, yeah. it, it, gives, it gives you a lead on all the other consumer sentiment indicators we used to wait a whole month for or two weeks for. <laughs> you know, you get this every day. But I mean, I give that just as one little example. Uh, there's obviously lots of stuff we do in that area. So, so it's been very helpful to have that kind of data. But the key thing about the pandemic was one needed to recognize and adapt one's models very quickly. You know, I'm only a humble economist. I know nothing about epidemics, but I was quickly reading what the experts on epidemics were saying. And I could see their little models showing repeated lockdowns. And of course, repeated lockdowns was going to be very disruptive of GDP and earnings. So what we needed to do very quickly was to figure out Because what we do is we forecast GDP for this year, next year, and then beyond. But the most important GDP forecasts are this year and next. So we were sitting there in April 2020 trying to figure out what GDP would do in 21. And obviously, we we didn't have a clue unless we could work out when lockdowns would end. So we realized that, of course, what we needed was a probability of when we get a viable vaccination. So we then got hold of survey data based on polling scientists on when we'd get a vaccine. So it got very interesting very quickly. I mean, I just give you a little example of how we had to adapt our models. So did you get the timing right? Or, or, or did oh, it come quicker I mean, than you expected? <laughs> uh, 
Okay, so, so that's a great question. Listen, I, I'm an economist. I knew nothing about it. So I was relying on what the scientists were saying. And it's really interesting. So the question that the survey question I was following, the question they were being asked, and this was in April 2020, yeah, is would there be an FDA approved vaccine that had been given to 25 million Americans by October 1, 21? That is the question they were being asked. Yeah. Wow. Very specific. And in April 2020, only 20% of the scientists said yes to that question. Okay. But by July 2020, 80% of them said yes. Okay. So what was very helpful in our modeling was picking up the move from 20 to 80. Yeah, the sentiment shift. That was huge for what I do because it transformed my GDP forecast and therefore transformed what I wanted to do in terms of holding equities. So it was really helpful to have adapted one's model to pick up that sort of fact. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So when you sort of look at all this technological development, uh, you mentioned natural language processing, uh, big data, even though you like don't like it too. Um, yeah. What is sort of your sense in how this will develop into the future in how people will invest? I mean, you said it's already radically uh, transformed the way you invest. Um, yeah. What is your sense of what we might expect from this? If anything, if I look back at my career, I've always underestimated the impact of these things. I've, uh, in the sense, you know, obviously I've always been interested in improving techniques, accessing better data and all that. So we try to stay current, but I've always underestimated how quickly the stuff moves. Yeah. So I'm very conscious of the limitations of my ability to predict improvements in this area. Um, so I think one has to be humble, but one has to stay current and make sure that one listens and watches out and tries to learn, and also that one hires younger people who are more conversant with this stuff than, you know, <laughs> an old fogey like I can be. Um, so I, I am lucky enough to have hired some younger people who know more about it than I do. Uh, and uh, I mean, the key thing is to stay current. I'm not clever enough to know, you know, when the next big development will come, but I just want to make sure that I'm aware of what's happening and I take advantage of it. Uh, I'm not trying to duck your question. I just no. don't feel confident to have an answer. Yeah. So so if we talk about right now, are there any sort of uh, techniques that you uh, um, favor over other ones in terms of machine learning or natural processing? At one level, uh, you know, if I talk to people who taught me econometrics, they say that was always machine learning anyway. So, you know, you've got to be careful <laughs> about the jargon. Now, we all have our biases. So certainly in terms of what we do, I'm greatly in favor of supervised machine learning. And we do that day in, day out. What I've not yet persuaded myself to get too interested in is unsupervised machine learning. Okay. Because you know, when we've done it, we found it's very easy to overfit. And it's all the, I mean, the two issues there, one is you can overfit and the other issue is it's very difficult to sleep at night, not knowing why your model is doing what it's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Hard to justify, I suppose. Yeah. So I prefer theory. You, know, you have to have some theoretical justification for why you're looking for something. And then if you find it, then at least it makes sense and it's, you're less likely to overfit. But that's a prejudice. And maybe I'll turn out to be wrong 
to have these beliefs. We'll see. Yeah, fair enough. Final question. Um, coming back to economics and Keynes, there has been a lot of uh, talk around MMT, especially now with the Green New Deal uh, coming into life. What's your sense of MMT? Are you a fan or are you against it? Listen, like any economic theory, uh, there are circumstances in which the insight is relevant. And I can see some circumstances in which they're right to say that you don't have to worry too much about expansionary fiscal policy. But I think if you look at all of Keynes's works, um, you know, he did write the treatise on money. He did worry about inflation as well in certain circumstances. He would be horrified. You know, in this country, uh, they call modern monetary theory magic money tree. <laughs> He'd be absolutely horrified. Uh, I mean, you know, it it could lead to such huge macroeconomic instability. And one shouldn't forget that ultimately the people who lose most from macroeconomic instability are the poor, you know, because people like you and me, you know, find a way around it. We may might even make money out of it, horror of horrors, but uh, it's the poor uh, who suffer. And therefore, I get incredibly worried when people push an idea which is relevant in a narrow context to it being relevant everywhere. And I think it's right. it's a dangerous notion uh, because it could lead to inflation coming back. And, you know, in my mind, inflation hurt the poor and hurt employment in many of our countries in the 1970s. Um, indeed, my PhD thesis was about inflation hurting employment. I'm just, I sometimes feel sad that people have forgotten how damaging high and variable inflation can be. Uh, and MMT could be a route to getting it back. So I think be very careful. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> well, Sushil, thank you very much. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, it was great to have you on the show. No, thank you. It's a pleasure uh, having a nice chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com. Thank you very much.